Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So we are living through some absolutely insane times, uh, historically speaking, what's going on in the culture, not just in our culture, but around the entire planet, around the globe. Um, you know, I, I think we can break, think about church history in three distinct eras. Um, distinct is a, a weird way to put it, but we'll just say three generalized eras. The first thousand years of the church's history, the church was wrestling with questions about the nature of Christ. Who is Christ? Like, what is a Jesus Christ? What does it mean to have a person be true God and true man, right? You had all these heresies arising. The church was answering these questions about what does it mean to say that God became flesh. So you had Christological heresies for the first thousand years. The second thousand years, the second millennium, you had the church wrestling with questions about the nature of the church. You had ecclesiological heresies. You had the schism between the East and the West in the 11th century. Uh, A few centuries after that, you had the further splintering of the church with the Protestant Reformation. So like the second thousand years of the church, the church was wrestling with questions about like, what does it mean for us to be a church, right? We're in the third millennium, and I would say the questions of the third millennium aren't about Jesus, aren't about the church. They're they're anthropological questions, questions about, like, the nature of the human person. What does it mean to be a human person? Like, that's what we are living through right now. Like, the the rise of uh, of secularism, so, like, the the rejection of God, the non-belief in God, the rise of secularism in the 19th and 20th centuries, they gave birth to this total loss of, of meaning, right? So the enlightenment that was growing up, that was happening in Europe, the 17th, 18th centuries, these sorts of like movements in the culture were pushing God further and further out. And what that resulted in was like a whole civilization, humanity, being unable to really answer the question meaningfully anymore. Like, what does it mean to be human? What are we? Like, what is a human person? How do we, how do we thrive? And so now we're living in an era where people like don't even know what it means to be human or we're trying to reinvent our humanity. We're trying to reinvent what it means to be human to the point where you've got big tech Silicon Valley billionaires trying to talk about like transhumanism, saying that like the next leap in humanity is going to be this this combination of humanity and like artificial intelligence and robotics and cyborgs and like Terminator's gonna like Skynet's gonna go active and like do they not watch the movies is my question like it always goes bad like it just like stop doing it don't do it right anyway all right so here's a great quote from Vatican II when God is forgotten the creature becomes unintelligible and this is what we are living through and this is humanity this is Edvard Munch's The Scream like, that's humanity right now, just screaming out, who are we? So tonight, uh, I hope you're thirsty, drink it from a fire hose. Um, I'm the fire hose. Um, we're going to be trying to understand how we got here. How do we get here? Like, what's the historical background? What laid the foundation for this? We're going to try to understand, like, give an answer to the question, um, what does it mean to be human? In particular, what's the deal with our bodies? Because, man, if you, miss, if you miss it when it comes to the flesh, when you, if you have a misunderstanding about the body, not only are you going to not understand Christianity, or Catholicism in particular, but Christianity like in, 
like entirely, right? Because we believe in the Word made flesh. We believe in the Word made flesh. The flesh really, 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 really matters. Really, really, really matters. In fact, I got a quote to prove it from the Catechism. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is creator of the flesh. We believe in the word made flesh in order to redeem the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the flesh. Flesh, 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 right? Flesh, it's important, right? Just like, like again, all right, there's like another sidebar. I feel like I'm like so echoey right here. Do I sound echoey? No, maybe it's just where I am. Okay. Um, just also please notice like, notice what bubbles up in your heart tonight, right? I might be pressing on some, some bruised places, some wounded places, some painful places. Just notice what, like, the Holy Spirit's bringing up in your heart. None of what I'm saying tonight is to condemn. None of what I'm going to say tonight is to point a finger or judge or any of those things. Um, but just notice what the Holy Spirit's bubbling up is in particular about, like, our, like your own relationship to your flesh. Chances are... Uh, if you're human, you probably have a hard time liking your flesh, right? That's why the cosmetic industry, the pharmaceutical industry, like those industries are multi-trillion dollar industries, right? Yeah, all right. Let's pray. We need to pray. We haven't prayed yet. We need to pray for protection. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, thank you for the gift of this night. Thank you for the gift of all of us gathered here making this journey. Lord, we ask you to bless us, protect us, protect this entire space through the intercession of Mary, Immaculate, and St. Michael. We ask you, Lord, to guard our hearts and minds that we understand and receive the truth that you want to communicate tonight. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. So nearly all of the churches what we would call maybe the morality hot button issues, the issues that get people riled up. I would, I would argue to say that nearly every single one of those issues flows from people having a faulty understanding of what a human person is and what we are designed for. In other words, like how we are meant to flourish, right? You go to Home Depot, you buy a plant, and with that plant, there's going to be a little tag that tells you like how much sunlight it needs, how much water it needs, um, all those sorts of things, right? Like that's not, that's not because there's these bigoted botanists out there who are like, I'm going to tell you what to do with your plant. Like, no, they're just telling you like, hey, if this thing will flourish, if you want it to flourish, this is, these are the conditions under which it's going to flourish. When it comes to the church's morality, it's saying these are the conditions under which we flourish. The church is not a killjoy. The church just simply wants sons and daughters to be totally alive and free and flourishing. So, uh, we are experiencing, as you saw in the title slide, an eclipse. An eclipse of the meaning of the body. The meaning of the human body. The meaning of like, being a man, being a woman. Um, words like man, woman, husband, wife, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, cousin. Like, all of those words, like... Those words which imply relationship, they only make sense in reference to bodies. Like, what the heck's a niece in ref like versus a nephew? Why would you make that distinction if not for the body, right? Here's a great quote from my friend Christopher West. He says this, Governments today, in fact, are now demanding in law 
that we identify every body without identifying any body. But when we identify some body without reference to his or her body, we identify quite literally no body. <laughs> and the problem is we are not nobodies. Like, we are somebodies, right? If my body wasn't in this room tonight, I would, I'm not in this room, right? I'm not a nobody. I'm a somebody. I'm a Patrick body. All right, so what's going on? What's at the root of all this? Here's where I want to start. All right, so many of you probably know that the Blessed Mother Mary, she appeared to three Portuguese children between May 13th and October 13th, 1917. Uh, this is the vision of Our Lady of Fatima uh, in Portugal. Unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. Just scratching the surface here tonight. She gave these three little kids what, what have been known as the three secrets of Fatima. The first was a vision of hell, which is like, whoa, Mary, like, that girl's six years old, right? Like, whoa. Okay. She's like, it doesn't matter. She's got to see it. So first was a vision of hell. The second was a prophecy about another great war, the World, world War II, and that Russia would spread her errors uh, throughout the world. And the third secret of Fatima was that the Holy Father would have much to suffer and would be killed. Um, by the way, when John Paul II was uh, the attempted assassination of his life was on, um, it was on May 13th, which is the feast of Our Lady of Fatima, right? Uh, yeah, unbelievable. Aliaka, who was the gunman, who was hired by the communists, fired the gun. He never missed a target. Fired the gun, three shots, boom, 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 right in the Holy Father's chest. Aliaka goes running, and it was a nun whose name was Sister Lucia, who tackled him, right? I don't know if you knew that. The gunman, the would-be assassin, who, ta who, who, who she, he was tackled by a nun named Sister Lucia. Why that's not a movie yet, I don't know. Um, that needs to be a movie. All right. So regarding that second prophecy about, you know, the Great War and Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, everyone kind of assumes that just it's a reference to communism, that Russia and communism was going to spread throughout the world. In some ways, Okay. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So if you think back to, I don't know if you see a philosophy one-on-one -on -one class studying Karl Marx and all these things. Karl Marx, who was the, the great thinker, not great, bad, demonic, evil thinker behind one of the world's worst ideas, communism. Um, his whole notion was that the defining feature of history is class struggle, right? Class struggle. And as he worked it out in Russia, it was between the haves and the have-nots, right? Proletariat, bourgeoisie, the, you know, the rich and the poor. But if you look at the writings of, of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, what you see there that the fundamental class struggle was not between the rich and the poor, but was, it was within monogamous marriage. It's within monogamous marriage. Engels writes this. I mean, you can say what you want about the guy, but man, did he have a beard. <laughs> The first division of labor is that between man and woman for the propagation of children. Marxist theory demands the abolition of the monogamous family as the economic unit of society. They're aimed at demolishing the family. So the error that Mary was referring to was the belief that the difference between man and woman, which is an embodied difference, and the family that they create, uh, she's saying, like, the thought that that's got to be eliminated, that's going to spread throughout the world, right? The enemy... Not Russia, not Marx, not communists, the enemy, Satan, Lucifer. He wants to attack, and he wants to undermine the sexual difference. This is what we're talking about tonight. 
So to understand why he's going at that, right, why he's aiming all of his diabolic fury at the sexual difference, we have to understand, we have to be reminded of what is the meaning behind this in the first place. What's the meaning of the sex distinction? And more specifically, what's the meaning? What's the logos? What's the rationality between our genital difference, right? right what's going on there? So let's just do a little thought experiment. You're an alien from another galaxy visiting Earth, and you're going to observe it, and you see the species called humanity, and uh, you look at all these human creatures, and you notice, pretty much first of all, like, you notice, probably the first thing you would notice is that um, they come in two varieties, right? <laughs> two flavors, right? A, a male form and a female form, and you then would probably ask yourself, what is this difference for, right? Why are they different this way? You, so you study these creatures, and upon further you know, study and reflection, you realize that these creatures, both the male version and the female version, are completely self-sufficient with respect to just about every bodily function, right? They can walk on their own. They can breathe on their own. They digest their own food. They've got their own circulatory system, locomotive system, neurological system. You got all the systems on your own. Like, no one, I don't need anybody else to, like, to take care of my enzymes for me. Like, I got it, right? Like, I'm doing it just fine. Back off, Chris. I can do it myself, right? <laughs> Don't touch my enzymes. <laughs> so they're utterly self-sufficient with respect to only one thing. There's only one thing where they're completely not self-sufficient. The male and female are radically incomplete with respect to the bodily function of reproduction. I've done this before. I won't do it tonight. But like, I've asked folks... You know, I've given a talk like this before. Raise your hand if you have a reproductive system. And everyone's like, yeah. You're like, no, you do not. And they're like, what? <laughs> no, what you have are reproductive organs. Together, the masculine and the feminine, together, that's where the reproductive system comes in. Um, yeah, it's the male and female together. How nice was that transition, by the way? <laughs> Note the perfectly placed branches. Okay. Reproduction, like I said, of course you know this, it requires a member of the opposite sex, right? You must have the opposite and complementary genital organs for this whole dance of life to come about. That's the meaning, by the way, of the word gender, right? Gender being all in the news, all in social media, like that's like the word of the day. The meaning of the word gender is like your gender is determined by the genitals you have, right? Like the manner in which one generates the next generation, that's what your gender is, the manner in which you generate the next generation, right? You hear the root gen, it means to give life to, to give birth to. There's only two ways to generate the next generation, in a male way, a giving of the seed, or in a female way, a reception of the seed, and a gestation, right? right? That's, that's the meaning of the word gender, not the 50 plus, thousand plus genders that Facebook has available to us. <laughs> Two, we're a sexually dimorphic species, right? All right, and then you ask the question, what is generated? Babies. I wasn't sure what your pause was there. Like, do we, do you not, do you know this? Okay, all right. Highly dependent newborns, right? You ever seen a newborn? Says the priest to all the people, right? They're, they can't do jack, squat, like they can't do anything, right? They are so helpless, right? Human beings, when we are born, we, we need, we are like barely able to function, right? You just look at the species, it's so evident that newborns require long-term parental investment 
from both mother and father, right? From both mother and father. So we are not like uh, sharks, right? Little baby sharks are born and they're like, like gone, right? Or snakes, like they're, they're good to go, like upon hatching, right? There's not like in the snake pit, right? There's no like feed me, right? They're just gone, right? Or we're not like amoebas, right? All of a sudden, like, you know, like a line splitting down my, like all of a sudden I split into two, right? Like that's not how it works for us. Like we show up very dependent, needing long-term high investment from our parents. So the alien looking at the species, the alien concludes that if the man and the woman who cooperated in generating this new life, if they're going to be responsible, then they ought to have committed themselves to each other in order to rear this child that their union produces, right? They ought, they, ha, they ought to have committed themselves through vows, right? That's the, that is the reason why marriage exists. Marriage exists to unite man and woman to each other, that they might be husband and wife, so that they are equipped to be mother and father to any child that their union produces. That's the sociological, anthropological, all the other ologicals reasons why marriage has existed in every culture that's left us a written record of its existence. Because only the male-female difference allows for, like, only adult men and women create those little helpless things called babies. That's why every civilization has ordered the relationships of adult men and women into stable unions called marriage. That's why it exists. I know this is a lot so far. How are we doing? We're good? Okay. That's why sexual intercourse throughout all of history has been called the marital act. That's the thing that married people do. Why is it the thing that married people do? Because they've committed themselves to each other. They've said the vows. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be there. Come hell or high water, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in the middle of the night when you're breastfeeding and you're sick and you can't feel your feet and you got to pee and you got the van and PTO and the french fries in the back seat. I just, there's poop everywhere, right? I'll be there. I'm not abandoning you, right? That's, that's why, right? That's why. Because it's a life-giving union. Only that union, adult man and woman, only that union is a life-giving union, and that demands commitment, right? It used to be obvious. This used to be obvious to everyone. The genitals were meant for generating. Just as obvious it is that eyes are meant for seeing, that ears are meant for hearing, that lungs are meant for breathing. Like, our genitals are meant for generating. That's what they're there for, right? That used to be obvious. That used to be obvious. It used to be what we called the facts of life. But we have forgotten the facts of life, right? So here's the question. What has changed? What has obscured our vision? How did we come to forget, or how did we come to dismiss the fact that genitals are meant to generate the next generation? What happened so that you have a whole generation or several who think that that's not what those are for. How does that happen? Uh, in a word, contraception is how that happened. So let's talk about that. So since the beginning of time, literally, men and women have been trying their darndest to think of creative ways to prevent pregnancy. There's, I don't have pictures of it. Um, <laughs> I meant to say something before I said that. <laughs> There are images of ancient, like ancient hieroglyphics of uh, people in ancient Egypt trying to, like, there's like medicine men trying to help with, you know, prevent pregnancy. It involved crocodile dung. 
I won't go into details. And again, I don't have pictures, but it turns out if you die of sepsis, you're probably not going to get pregnant, right? So um, anyway, so from the beginning of time, people have been trying to, to separate the life-giving power of sexuality from the, from the pleasure part of sexuality, right? Um, it was only in the 1800s when we started to be able to vulcanize, oops, not that slide, it's, there we go. Only with the vulcanization of rubber uh, do we have beginning to have the, the somewhat reliable means of birth control, um, barrier methods, those sorts of things. But it was the invention of the pill in the 1950s did civilization have a somewhat consistent or reliable, seemingly reliable way of preventing pregnancy, thanks to uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood, a eugenicist named Margaret Sanger, um, who wanted to eliminate the African population. African-American population, that's what was one of her goals. That's why Planned Parenthoods are predominantly in African-American neighborhoods. Um, so yeah, that was a heavy one, but that's true. So Margaret Singer, was, she was a eugenicist. She studied um, the approach of the Third Reich, and she thought it's a lot easier to get rid of a population if you prevent them from being born than it is from loading them in rail cars and killing them after they're born. So. Her, along with another uh, unethical biologist and chemist named Gregory Pincus, they developed the first birth control pill. There's so much more we could talk about that, but I don't have, believe it or not, I don't have the time tonight to get into that. So at the turn of the 20th century, contraception in all of its forms was not only just like frowned upon, um, it was illegal in this country. All of its forms, it was illegal, the Comstock laws. Um, up until 1930, every single Christian denomination, yes, contraception, yeah. Up until 1930, every single Christian denomination, not just Catholics, every single Christian denomination was united in their opposition to contraception. Until the Anglican Church, in a conference in Lambeth, England, said that for very, very rare circumstances, it might be maybe, sort of, maybe possible for married couples to maybe use contraception. Why do they say that? Well, because it was the 1930s. The world, like, thing, life was hard, and people were having big families, and big families were hard. And guess what? You just got through a world war, and there were no more men. Like, the men of Europe were dead. They were basically all dead. Um... And so you had all of these mothers trying to raise children. It, just, it was just so burdensome and painful and difficult. So the Anglican Church, they cracked the door open. It was not based on philosophical arguments, but just simply life was really hard. So they cracked this door open, and then nearly overnight, every other mainline Protestant church fell in line behind the Anglicans, saying, yeah, this is okay, this is okay. And what became a very small permission at the beginning became the norm throughout all of Christianity, leading to major, 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 major pressure being applied to the Catholic Church. Will the Catholic Church, will the Catholic Church change its teaching, right? That curmudgeon in Rome, will he change his mind, right? So let's fast forward. It's around the year 1960, 1962. The biggest meeting in human history happens called the Second Vatican Council. How would you like to attend that meeting? Like, I just like, how did they do it? I don't, I mean, like, meetings of like 10 people, I'm like, oh, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. This is absolutely miserable, right? 
Like, anybody make a motion? You know, does anybody speak the same language? No? Okay. Um, and like, apparently they all still had to wear the same outfit, I guess. Anyway. So, um, so the biggest meeting in world history, the Second Vatican Council was called in 1962 by Pope John the 23rd, Pope St. John the 23rd. Um, the idea of the council was that it was meant to look at the church's approach to the modern world, right? The church um, kind of had in some ways forgotten her mission of bearing the light to the world, right? So the idea was, um, the great image of the church I love is, is the image of the bark of Peter, right? The, this big boat, kind of like Noah's Ark. The point of the ark was to preserve life aboard the ark so that when the floodwaters receded, you would open the doors and flood the world with the life that was in the ark. That's the goal of the church. Like the church floating on the sea of history is meant to flood the world with what we have inside the church. Kind of what happened uh, in some ways, and again, this is another talk for another night, is a lot of the world flooded into the church. Kind of we got it backwards. But 1962, the vision of Pope John XXIII was to, to call this council to figure out how the church can be better equipped to bring the light of the gospel into the world. So um, this was shortly after, 1962, this was shortly after the, the sort of mainstream of the birth control pill coming on the scene. And uh, there were all of these questions about it, right? Like, is this... Is this a new moral issue, right? This, is, this seems to be different than, than barrier methods. Is this a different moral issue? And um, so within the council, right, the, the church, um, people were thinking that the church was going to look at this question and then the church was finally going to change its teachings, right? So what Pope John XXIII did is he, called, he asked for a special commission to gather, right? So a special group of theologians, doctors, experts, they were going to come together to consider this question. Can the church, can we as a Roman Catholic church, um, permit the use of the artificial birth control pill? Can we, can, is that permissible now? Um, so this commission, this commission was all for changing the teaching. They were all in favor of it. Um, they were all in favor of it. There was this majority report. Mind you, this commission was... They were a consultative body. They weren't a deliberative body. They were just kind of making recommendations for the Holy Father. So they wrote up their reports. Um, there was a few dissenting voices on this commission. One of them was a, a cardinal archbishop who was kind of stuck behind the Iron Curtain back in Poland. His name is Karol Wojtyla. More about him later. Um, so uh, he shows up as John Paul II. But anyway, so this, this commission comes together. They're writing the report. They're saying... Like, we're going to accept this teaching. We're going to make the recommendation that this is allowed. Um, and they're pressuring the Pope to accept it. And this report got leaked to the public. It got leaked to the public, to the press, early in May of 1967. Um, so it just, like, spread like wildfire. People around the world were like, whoa, baby, the church is finally getting with the times. The church is finally coming up. The church is going to finally agree with everybody else, right? Um, and again, think 1967. What's going on culturally in this country like 1967? Sex revolution, sex drugs and rock and roll, like Vietnam. Vietnam. You got a few people getting assassinated, like Summer of Love. You got Woodstock in 1968, right? Like 
crazy, crazy, tumultuous times, right? And the sort of general attitude of the culture was a sort of like a bucking the system, like throw off the, the strictures of the past, right? That's all in the air. That's all in the air, right? So a, a little over a year after this report got leaked, like just imagine the damage is like damage has been done, right? It's all out there. And everyone's expecting the church, when the church finally says what she's going to say, everyone's expecting the church to say, yeah, you can do that now, right? So imagine the shock of shocks. On July 25th, 1968, Pope Paul VI shocks the world when he releases this behemoth of a document. Behold, Humanae Vitae. I will thumb through it for you. Don't blink. Here we go. And it's over. Yeah. This little thing. Any of you ever see the movie Men in Black? It's been on like my YouTube TV recently, right? Uh, what's his name? Will Smith and... Um, what's his name? Tommy Lee Jones, right? When they go to the store to, buy, to get their, like, their guns when they're going into battle, and he like, gives uh, Will Smith's character that tiny little, little gun. It's called the cricket. He's like, very, very small, but very powerful. Oh, yeah. right? right? That's what this guy is. The noisy cricket. That what it was? Yeah. This is the noisy cricket, right? Very, very small. Packs a big punch, right? Humani Vitae. All right. What Pope Paul VI did to the shock of the world is that he reaffirmed the church's traditional teaching, saying that each and every act of sexual intercourse between husband and wife, each and every act needs to both preserve what the church calls the unitive end of sexuality and the procreative end. So let me say a word about what that means. That in God's design, he has joined together two things in the act of marital intercourse. Let's just take a sidestep and just notice how he's done that with other things, right? Like God has joined together both tasting, chewing, with digesting, by taking food into your body, right? These two things, tasting, enjoying food, chewing it, mm, that tastes good, and the act of bringing in nutrients into your body, right? These two ends are joined together in this one act. What the Pope has said was that every act of intercourse needs to preserve the, the, the capacity for this act to unite a couple together. So it's, it's bonding. There's no more bonding thing that a married couple can do than this. It's bonding. It's also the life-giving act, right? This is how like, life enters the world, right? Like God could have set it up otherwise. Just let's think about that, right? He could have made it so that like, a person gets pregnant when you do like a cool handshake with somebody, right? Like, 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 the, like and like, you know, you learn when you, you're like 13, 14, your mom takes you out like, I'm going to give you the talk about the handshake. You're like, I don't want to know about the handshake. Right? Like, but he didn't do it that way, right? He joined together the lovemaking act with the life-giving act, right? Those two ends go together. And he's saying every time, every time they need to be held together to preserve the integrity of the act and to preserve the integrity of the persons performing the act, right? We can see that it's, it's, it's like what the world was wanting. We want, the, we want the unitive, but we don't want the procreative. We want this end of, of sexual intimacy, but not the consequences that it brings. Think about it with our food digestion thing. What if someone's like, I just am so sick of chewing food. Like, I don't, I just am so exhausted with it. Like, you get, I get food in my beard. It's stuck in my teeth. I hate brushing my teeth. You know what, doctor? Just put in a feeding tube. Like, I'm just sick of eating. Just, I just, I'll, 
I'll just put it in straight to my stomach, right? Bypass my whole mouth. Like we all can see that that's like, you, no, you ought not do that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or even like, I mean, like a real life example to that point, just someone who struggles with an eating disorder who like eats and eats and eats and then purges, right? Like I want the enjoyment of the eating food, but I don't want, I don't want the nutrition. I want, like we can see in both ends in those, like there's something distorted about that. Or flip the, the unitive and procreative. Think about the, the TV show, The Handmaid's Tale, right? You've got people like, I don't want any bonding with you. I just want to use you to procreate, to, you know, to gestate a baby in you. Like, I don't want any relationship. I just want to use you. Like, we can see readily that, like, no, no, no. That's, that's, there's something very disordered there, right? There's something disordered there, meaning against the order that God has put in place, right? All right, so um, 1968, the little, the noisy cricket drops on the world. Everyone goes berserk. And a lot, obviously, it happened in the year between 67 and 68 when the report got leaked. And the day that this was released, on the steps of, oh, I meant to show you this. Oh, gosh, this is so good. Back, okay. So, I was praying about this. I was like, this image came to my mind of, like, what Paul VI was doing, what he did when he released this encyclical. You had the entire world, more on this as we keep unpacking this, but you had the enemy wanting to get into this most holy of things. And yet Paul VI, he is Gandalf on the bridge of Khazad Doom, telling Satan, you shall not pass, baby. Here's, this is what Paul VI did. Humanity. Paul of six, baby, telling Satan, you are not getting in here, right? You shall not pass, right? <laughs> so awesome. So awesome. Okay. Well, so like I said, the day the Humanae Vitae dropped, um, on the steps of, uh, of Catholic University of America, Father Charles Curran, that bloke right there, he was ready with a press conference to tell the world, you do not have to listen to this. This is based on a faulty understanding of uh, natural law. Catholics, you do not have to follow what the church says, is what he said. And dissent spread like wildfire. This teaching, this document, honestly, I think more than any other of our church's teachings is the most rejected, the most vilified, and arguably the most ignored of the church's teachings. The noisy cricket, man. You shall not pass. Okay. In this document, Paul VI, he makes some predictions. He makes some, like, very prophetic predictions. He, here's Paul VI, by the way. Pope St. Paul VI, yeah. He warned that a contracepting world would become a world of rampant infidelity. Just ask yourself, was he right? It'd be a world where, where women in childbearing are degraded, 
a world in which governments trample on the rights and needs of the family, be a world in which human beings believe they can manipulate their bodies at will. Was he right? Survey says. <laughs> on all four counts. Yeah. And what's fascinating about this, it wasn't just people in the church. It wasn't just bishops and cardinals who were saying, like, no, 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 we shouldn't do this. There was a lot of men and women uh, outside of the church surprising people, people like Freud even, who were saying, don't take on this contraception thing. Like, this is bad for humanity. Gandhi was saying it. Roosevelt was saying it, for God's sake, right? You got Roosevelt saying it. You got to know it's true, right? So, um, so it wasn't just true. It was people who clearly saw the facts of life were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You mess with that. You mess with the whole like, human ecology, right? You mess with the whole human thing. So here's the question. How did Paul VI see this? How was he so prophetic? How did they predict this? Like, what did they understand that we have forgotten Civil law used to understand and civil law used to defend and protect the fact, given in nature, that marriage, sex, and babies belong together and in that order. All right, here's your pop quiz. Ready? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and the baby carriage. Very good, right? What you didn't know when you were learning that little nursery rhyme is that you were learning good natural law and good theology, right? You were learning God's order of things. Like, this is the way God said. Uh, again, think of the little card. You get the plant at Home Depot. Again, no condemnation, no judgment, none of that. But this is God saying, like, hey, this is the way I want you to flourish. I'm not going to punish you if you don't do this. I'm not going to punish you. But he's saying there there's natural consequences, natural struggles and hurdles that will come in if you don't do this, Right? Like, you can try as much as you want to repudiate the law of gravity. You know, I'm going to say, I'm in protest of gravity. I'm going to go up to the roof and I jump off and protest of gravity. I mean, I'm going to suffer the consequences, right? Like, the little card saying, this is, if you want this plant to flourish, do these things, right? So God has united these things, marriage, sex, and babies, together and in this order, these three realities to be like this tight knot, okay? This tight knot that reveals that reveals the truth of his own eternal life-giving fatherhood. Right? God created these things to be a sign to point to his own life-giving love. Right? So contraception, it not only loosens the bonds of this knot, it, it obliterates, it, it splits the atom. Right? We all know what happened when we split the atom. Right? Devastation. You split the atom, you split this tight knot, marriage, sex, and babies, you're going to have devastation. What ends up happening is we stop seeing the connection that sex is what married people do because sex can and often does lead to babies. We stop seeing it, right? And in our culture, um, yeah, and in the, our own Supreme Court, right, back in 2015, and they're ruling on, on same-sex marriage, Obergefell versus Hodges, um, our culture doesn't see that. Our culture sees that marriage isn't really about sex anymore. Because sex isn't really about babies. Like the, the Supreme Court, I think it was Justice Kennedy who said that marriage exists to be a, a, a remedy for loneliness. I'm like, bro, have you talked to married couples? Like, what'd you say? Catholic Supreme Court Justice Kennedy. Yeah, right. Lord have mercy. Yeah. 
I'm just like, I, I know a lot of married people who are pretty dang lonely. <laughs> like, that ain't the remedy to loneliness, bro. Um, I call Justice Kennedy, bro. We're pretty tight. <laughs> no, like, we've, we've, marriage isn't really about sex anymore. It's about personal companionship because we made it so that sex really isn't about babies anymore. It's about, about pleasure. So when you untie this knot of marriage, sex, and babies going together and in that order, when you untie that knot, you end up necessarily redefining all three of those things. Right, So babies are a clump of cells that can be discarded at will if they're unwanted, or they can also become a designer accessory that a couple wants uh, that they feel have a right to. Right, um, Sex becomes mutual pleasure exchange between you know, consenting parties that's meaningless. Um, it's malleable, superfluous. And marriage becomes a government stamp of approval on whatever form of deep companionship you personally want. Why marriage should be, you know, relegated to two people is completely, it's, 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 there's no sense behind it when you take out the baby part, right? Why can't I have a deep bond with three people, with four people, with five people, right? That's why you have in other states, or maybe even our own state, I don't even know, but you have almost, almost a year to the date that Obergefell dropped, there was thruples coming forward getting married. There's quadruples and quintuples, these group marriages. Because if it's about companionship, who are you to say that this isn't my number one bond, right? All right. This is why, and this is why the embracing of contraception has led to the normalization of homosexual behavior and the call of, of gay marriage. And again, like I said at the beginning, I'm saying all of this with great reverence, with no judgment, none whatsoever. We just have to look, and we have to look with like rational minds at what all of this means. Because once you sever sexual pleasure from procreation, why does sexual pleasure need to be experienced and limited to the opposite sex? Once you sever it from procreation, if it's not about babies, if it's just simply about pleasure, why does it need to be reserved to the opposite sex, right? In, in truth, it's, it's impossible to raise what good, well-meaning gay couples do with their bodies. You cannot elevate what they do with their bodies and say it's the same thing that what a man and woman, a husband and wife do with their bodies. Like, remember what, you probably don't remember this, but years ago there was that song that got really popular by that one rapper named Macklemore called Same Love. You probably don't remember it. That's okay. Um, but he was saying, like, it's all the same. Like, what they do is the same. What they do is the same. It, it's, and and it's, it's, it sounds right. Like, in the phrase, love is love, that's, that's a great bumper sticker, but it's, it lacks all nuance and all reality, right? Like, the way my grandma loved me, life-givingness, right? It's, it's naturally procreative. Yes, there's a, there's a thousand reasons why this particular marriage might be struggling to, to bring about the fruit of the union, right? And that's a brutal cross. I don't mean to dismiss that at all. I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying it's naturally procreative in type. But a homosexual couple, their union is intrinsically sterile. It's intrinsically sterile. It can never be procreative in type, meaning what they do with their bodies is not the same thing as what a heterosexual couple does with their bodies, right? 
Here's the thing, but it is possible for an adult sexual relationship, a husband and wife, to reduce, it's possible for them to do with their genitals in marriage what a same-sex couple does with theirs, meaning they can engage in sterile sex. Back to the point of contraception. So when married couples claim a right to have sterile sex, it's only a matter of time when couples who have naturally sterile sex claim a right to marriage. See how this is, this is the world that we're living in. This is what's happened. Again, these are not the enemy. These are wonderful people. Like, this, is not, this is not the enemy. Um, the church teaches. There's three paragraphs in the catechism on homosexuality. Two of the three are about, like, we need to love these people. <laughs> like, we need to defend their dignity. But, like, we have to also recognize there's a difference. There's a difference. Pope Benedict, before he was Pope Benedict, Back in 1984, he was still Joseph Ratzinger. He said this. He said, uh, hang on. Oh, yeah, yeah. We will atone in our day for the consequences of a sexuality which is no longer linked to procreation. It logically follows from this fact that every form of genital activity is equivalent, no longer having an objective reason to justify it. Sex seeks the subjective reason in the gratification of the desire, in the most satisfying answer for the individual. It's like, it's what I prefer, right? He says, in turn, he observed that everyone becomes free to give to his personal libido, like his own personal desire, the content considered suitable for himself. This is, this is what I prefer, right? Hence, it naturally follows that all forms of sexual gratification are transformed into the rights of the individual. People end up demanding the right of escaping from the slavery of nature, demanding the right to be male or female at one's will or pleasure. This is 1984. So, again, who can deny that this is the world that we're living in? This is a world where we see just this total eclipse of the body. The enemy doesn't want us to understand our bodies. Because again, the flesh is the hinge of salvation. Flesh is the hinge of salvation. All right, but the plot thickens. You ready for more? Can you handle more? Are we doing okay? I told you, this is going to be a heavy night. All right, the plot thickens. So, soon after, there he is, soon after Pope Paul VI died. He died in August 1978. Cardinal Carol Wojtyla the Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow came to Rome with all the other Cardinal electors to elect the new Pope with the conclave, the first conclave of 1978. So, Carol Wojtyla brought with him a lengthy handwritten manuscript that he had been prayerfully working on for about four years. It was nearly complete, and he, he was, his plan was in the midst of the conclave when they had breaks, he was going to keep working on it, put the finishing touches on it, this manuscript on page one, it bore this very strange title in Polish. It read, Teologia Chala. I don't speak Polish. That's my best Polish, which translates to Theology of the Body. Theology of the Body. Again, Christopher West says this, The hundreds of pages that followed in his hand held perhaps the most profound and compelling biblical reflection on the meaning of our creation and redemption as male and female ever articulated. The in-depth mystical insights of a modern saint that had the power to change the world if 
those insights had an opportunity to reach the world, that is. So the Cardinals, they elect this guy named Albino Luciani, who takes his name means, uh, well, it doesn't matter what it means. It means the white light. Anyway, so um, he takes the name. Uh, they ask him, Holy Father, what will you, what will you be called? And he says, uh, Pope John Paul I. And they're like, uh, sorry, uh, Holy Father, you're, you, you would just be Pope John Paul. Uh, you don't need the, the, the first part, right? It's implied. You are the first one. It's just, you're Pope John Paul I. Or you're just Pope John Paul. He's like, no, no, no. There will be another, is what he said. And he was right, because he was Pope for 33 days. He did a Wednesday general audience. What he, did, he did an audience on faith. Uh, the next week, he did one on hope. The next week, he did one on love. And then he died. He's like, I'm out of here. I've said all there is to say, right? He died, right? So everyone's like, crap, we just did this. Everyone, back to Rome, right? So they get back to Rome for the second conclave of 1978. This was crazy. This has never happened, right? So the Cardinal's back in. Carol Vutiwa's got his manuscript. All right, and no, no, he doesn't have his manuscript. It's back in Poland. So they elect Carol Vutiwa, the first non-Italian pope in over 500 years, and they ask him, what will you be called? He says, Pope John Paul II. Everyone's like, whoa, Pope John Paul II. So uh, he comes out. Is this a picture? There he is. Do not be afraid. Open wide. You, want to see, this, you can watch it on YouTube. His coming out of the loggia, he, he has some like Italian grammatical errors. Everyone's like, we love him. He's so great. Anyway, my impression of him, I always turn him into the count from Sesame Street. <laughs> Do not be afraid. One encyclical. Ha, ha, ha. Two bullets from an assassin. All right. So, um, so he steps out on the loggia. He's elected Pope John Paul II. The guy, think about this, the guy who has just written, who's just created the antidote to the cultural poison and chaos becomes the Pope, right? The, the like, I do you feel this? This is crazy. Like, God's providence is insane, right? Pretty much the only person who was equipped to articulate, like, the antidote to the poison, he had the cure for cancer, and he's suddenly given the platform of the world stage. He was planning on just releasing this as a book. He was just going to write a book called Theology of the Body, and like people like, I don't know, some carnal Poland wrote, I don't forget it, it's stupid, so a lot of words, right? Like, it was just going to be a, a, a book, but it becomes the first teaching project of his pontificate. For the next five years, 129 audiences, every Wednesday, he gets up there, and he's teaching the world. Like this, here's what it is. This is what it looks like, right? Noisy cricket. I don't know, big, big Whopper with cheese or something. I don't know, double Whopper with cheese. All right, so Theology of the Body had its platform. So his title, Theologia Chala, right? Uh, it was inspired by a little line that Pope Paul VI had written in here. So Pope Paul VI, he had observed that in order to like understand what he's saying in this, he says what we need is to get beyond partial perspectives, and what we need is what Paul VI says is an integral vision of man. Another way of saying that is we need to better understand who and what we are. We need an anthropology. We need to understand what does it mean to be human. This is what John Paul II gave the world. This is why, this is what frustrates me a little bit about being Catholic sometimes, because people often get so frustrated about our church's teachings. And we're like, why does the church say you can't use contraception? 
Like, that's the question. You're like, okay, well, do you have like 10 hours for me to explain this to you? Like, like the one little question, like to answer it, he wrote this. To, like, do you see what I'm saying, right? To answer that question, he gave the world this. He gave the world this. This is what John Paul II set out to do with this, to give the world this total vision of man. So the operative word here is vision. People in the modern world, thanks to people like Hugh Hefner and people like Margaret Sanger and, and, and Playboy magazine, all these like people, the world became obsessed with looking at the human body. But the problem is, as Jesus says, they look, but they do not see. Like they're blinded. John Paul II's theology of the body was an invitation for everybody, as Jesus says, come and see. Like, I want to invite you to be able to see, right? You don't have the right glasses. You're not seeing it, right? It's like going to the movies to watch a 3D movie and you didn't get your 3D glasses. You're like, eh, it looks weird. Like, watch an avatar. There's like big blue people. I don't understand. You're like, whoa, right? You need your 3D glasses, right? So, John Paul II, he reframed the question. He reframed all of the questions about sexual morality. Um, so instead of asking, like, how far is too far, right? Or, like, what, what's the most I can get away with and still be, like, okay, you know? He reframed it by saying, well, first, first you have to answer, like, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does love demand, right? Why did God create this in the first place? So John Paul II's answer to those questions, like what does it mean to be human? Why did God create us? In a word, he says that God created human, human sexuality to be a sign, to be a great sign. We've been talking about the last few weeks um, sacramental signs, right? We talked about sacramentality. I talked about baptism, confirmation. He created our bodies to be a sign that's meant to proclaim, that's meant to reveal, that's meant to enable human beings to participate in God's own life. Like our body is a sign. God speaks to us in sign language, right? We've been talking about that. You read it in Romans 1.20. Like the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Like all of creation is pointing to the creator. But the greatest sign that God made was human being. God made them male and female, made them in his own image and likeness. Like he made us in our masculinity and femininity to become a sign, right? All right, of what? Of the Trinity, of God himself. This is what he made us to be a sign of. Deacon, can you give me a bottle of water? My voice is just going. Thank you. How are we doing? You doing okay? Let's just take like a, let's just all do like a real quick stretch break. Just everyone like stretch it out. Take a deep breath. Do something. Here you go, bro. Thank you. <laughs> ah. All right. I told you. Two hours of content in an hour and a half. Are you tracking with me? Yeah? You with me? Steven, you with me? I love it. Melanie, you with me? Okay. Alex? You with me? Okay. I told you guys, go get your snacks whenever. You didn't have to wait until I told you. I tried. All right.
I'm going to keep going. Here we go. So God made our masculinity and femininity to be a sign that pointed to and revealed who he is within himself. This is an icon uh, of the Trinity. This is an icon of the Trinity. It's a very old icon painted by a Russian iconographer named Rublev. Um, it depicts the Trinity as these three angelic figures, right? So the catechism says, listen to this, God has revealed his innermost secret. I love that line. He has spilled the beans. He's revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what you have here, the Trinity, from all time, we've talked about this, is an eternal exchange of love, life and love, endless bliss, endless life and love. That's who and what the Trinity is, right? That's what the Trinity is. The Catechism continues. And he has destined us to share that exchange. We are destined to be united with the very life of the Trinity. That's what heaven is, right? Heaven's not living in the same, like, big glory cloud room where God is. Like, you got your cloud house and your cloud dog and you get your cloud mail and then God walks by. You're like, whoa, right? Like, no, that's not heaven. Heaven's being taken up. It's entering into this open space. Like, this is an invitation saying, come in, enter the dance, right? That's what heaven is, entering into union with God. He has carved this, as the catechism says, God has revealed this. He has carved this life-giving love into our very bodies, into our masculinity and femininity, so that when the husband and wife give themselves to each other in love, that love-giving act is a life-making act, right? So when the two become one, they become so much one that nine months later they have to give it a name because they're three in one, right? Much like our God is three in one. What you're meant to see in the family is the earthly sign, the earthly image of the Trinity. That's what our humanity is. This is the thesis statement, if you will, of Theology of the Body. John Paul II says, the body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. The body, he says, has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world what? The mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. Again, what's the mystery hidden from eternity in God? Uh, did, oh, I read it. I read the quote. Never mind. That God himself is an endless exchange of life and love. Right? The body reveals that God is endless life and love. And the body is a sign of it, right? He's written this into our spousal love. And this is the point. Here's the point. If we cease to understand what spousal love is on the earthly plane, the visible reality, if like the sign, if the sign is obscured, if we cease to understand what spousal love is, what a spouse is, what a husband is, what a wife is, then we are going to cease to understand who God is and how he wants to relate to us. You see what's at stake here, right? Like, if the body, if our masculinity and femininity is like the decoder ring, like if it's the cipher to decode the great mystery, you get rid of that, you're never going to understand the great mystery. You're never going to decode the thing. You're never going to get the prize on the back of the cereal box, right? Like, that's going to be awful. All right. This is why, this is why from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, the mysteries of creation and redemption and salvation. That whole book, the whole Bible, the whole Bible is telling this love story. 
That's why nuptial imagery, spousal imagery, marital imagery is over the whole thing from beginning to end. This is the story that most Christians don't have. Or they've never heard. They've never heard this as like, hey, this is the interpretive key you need to understand the story. Right? Back to the image of the 3D movie. Like most Christians are reading the, the Bible as if it's a 3D movie without their 3D glasses on. I'm like, ah, eh, I guess I get some of it. I mean, that part is weird, and that part's really weird, but like, I get that, right? But you put these on, and you're like, what? The 2D book turns into a 3D pop-up book. Most Christians don't know the story behind all the stories. So, real quick, that's what I just want to tell you, real quick, I just want to zip through, basically, like the very tippy-tippy tip of like John Paul II's Theology of the Body, right? So the Bible, like I said, the Bible is telling this love story. The, the, the Bible begins and ends with weddings. Do most Christians know that? I don't think so. <laughs> like the very beginning of Genesis, I mean, if you're coming to Mass here, you know that because I've been preaching that. But the very beginning of Genesis, you have the marriage of Adam and Eve in an earthly paradise. The end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you have the marriage of Christ the Lamb to the church in a heavenly paradise. Right, the first human words in Scripture are Adam waking up, looking at the newly formed body of his bride Eve, saying like, "Whoa, man!" That's why I called her woman. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just make sure you're awake. Okay. He looked at her and said, "This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman." The last human words in Scripture, it's the bride in heaven crying out to the bridegroom, saying, "Come, Lord Jesus." It's a longing. For the consummation of the marriage of the Lamb, right? Like those are the, like, what? Like, yes, yes. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, like over and over again, the prophets, when they talk about Israel's idolatry, so that when they worship false gods, the prophets say, you have been like an adulterous wife. You've been cheating on the Lord, is what they say. They, they, they connect idolatry with adultery. They connect these things. All throughout the Old Testament, the images of Yahweh as the creator, as the, as the Lord, they, he's, he's described as a bridegroom. As a young man marries a virgin, so shall your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. That's Isaiah. How does a, like, how does a bridegroom rejoice in his bride? Like, that's what the scriptures are saying. You look to the very center of the Bible, the book, the Song of Songs, it's, it's essentially love poetry. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. And yet, the rabbis of ancient Israel, they referred to, they said, all of Scripture is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. It's the holiest of the books of the Bible. Why? Because that book, above all others, is articulating the relationship between God and Israel, between God and the soul. This is steamy stuff. Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict, he says that the Song of Songs expresses the essence of biblical faith. Like, if that makes you a little uncomfortable, I mean, we got to reckon with that a little bit. Like, what, what are the saints, what are the saints seeing that we're not seeing? Like, friends, just like, just hit pause on this real quick, that this whole Christianity thing, like you becoming Catholic, where do you think this is headed? Like, how deep do you think he wants to go with you? 
like we're all in different places in our journeys. We all have different, you know, things that we're still struggling with. We all, you know, still trying to incorporate prayer, all those things. But like, do you think God's just merely interested in a sort of cordial, friendly, professional, business, casual relationship with you? The answer is no. Like God always is just scooching ever closer. He's just scooching ever closer. Like he's a bridegroom, the scriptures say. He's this, he's this hunter. He's this lover. He's wild. The book of Hebrews describes God as an unquenchable fire. What? He says when we come to Mass, you've drawn near to Mount Zion, to the, to the, the fiery furnace of God's own heart. Like That's who our God is. Like, y'all, this isn't about just, like, getting friendly, getting cordial. Buddy Jesus, let's just go be pals. He, like, they're the only one who puts, like, who pauses, the only one who gets to say, no, this is as far as I want to go, is us. We're the only limiting principle to the depth that God wants to go with us. All right. Pope Benedict, Song of Songs, expresses the essence of biblical faith. He wants all the way in. He wants all the way in. He wants all the way in. And this is written, this is, this is the story behind the whole story in the entire Bible. Beginning in Genesis, right? In the beginning, right? When God made everything, he, like, by the sheer power of his word, and then when he pauses and says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Human being is the only creature that says, let us make man in our image. Right? Who's the us that's speaking there? Who's creating? Who's saying it? The Trinity. Right? That's like the three persons of the Trinity saying, let us make man in our image. Right? So the human person, male and female, is the image of God in our masculinity and femininity, right? in our capacity to relate to each other. So God makes them in this way, right? And he plants the human being in this place called Eden, which biblical scholars say like the best, the nearest translation to that is fertile pleasure park. Yeah, take that in for a second. You'd be like, why did we leave this Eden place, right? Like fallen world. Like, this is not the fertile pleasure park, right? It wasn't until the seventh day with the creation of Adam and Eve does God say it is very good. Why? Because everything else, all of the rest of creation, was a stage upon which the drama of human love and divine love would be played out. Everything was culminating towards humanity, right? So you have this image and likeness thing. You've got, our, you've got humanity together revealing God. You've got Adam saying, this one at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, all of this. And then, like, the fall is this great rupture of this relationship that God created this marriage of Adam and Eve to be a sign of this marriage between heaven and earth, right? He created earthly marriage to be a sign of his marriage to humanity. Like, he's like, this is how I want to relate to you, right? It's something like spouses, right? So in the fall, you have this great rupture of relationship, right? So you have Genesis 3 onward telling the story of God's rescue mission, trying to bring humanity back together. God's trying to reestablish this communion. For what? So that we can just be merely cordial again? Like, hello, God, good to see you again. Yes, I'm trying to be good and well-behaved. 
you always turn into Brit- like a British person, right? But no, he's trying to bring us back together for communion so that he can fill us with divine life. All of this culminates in the New Testament with Jesus, the bridegroom, right? That in the fullness of time, God sends his son, born of woman, born under the law, that in his very person, Jesus is himself, true God and true man. He is the wedding of heaven and earth, right? His very first miracle, we just heard it the other day, was where? At a wedding feast, right? Doing the job of a bridegroom, providing the wine, right? He could have done any miracle at any point in any other situation, but he, his, like, his coming out miracle is, I'm doing a miracle at a wedding feast. Like, huh, that seems awfully coincidental. No, it's not, right? He's doing this intentionally. All throughout his ministry, he's like referring to himself as the bridegroom. He says enigmatic things like, can, when the Pharisees are like, hey, why do your disciples keep eating on the Sabbath? He says, can the wedding guests fast when they're with the bridegroom? He's pointing to himself, right? He looks at John the Baptist. He says, he's the friend of the bridegroom. Another word is he's like the best man. When Jesus has that encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, because we don't read the scriptures through first century Jewish ears and eyes, what we miss is, if you, were, if you were a Jew in Jesus' day and you heard someone telling a story about, there's this girl at a well and then this foreign guy comes and talks to her at a well. If you heard that story, the next thing you would assume is, well, did they get married? Reason being, all throughout the Old Testament, there's this like pattern that emerges. Girl at the well, foreign guy comes to the well, they get married. Yet Jacob, where does Jacob meet his wife? At a well. Yet Moses, where does Moses meet his wife, Zipporah? At a well. Okay? Like, it's a pattern, right? So you got Jesus talking to this woman who's been with six guys, okay? If you're looking at the Bible, what's the, what's the number? Let's see if we can test your knowledge. What's the number of perfection in the Bible? Seven. Seven. What's the number of imperfection in the Bible? Six. What's the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation? Six, right? In, in, in Hebrew, there was no way to, there was no superlative tense. There was no way of saying like the holiest. The way you would say something is the holiest is you would say it three times. You would say holy, holy, holy. So what are we saying at mass? We're going holy, holy, holy. We're saying, God, you are the holiest. The enemy is marked by 666, meaning you are the imperfectest. You are the worstest, right? Like you are the evilest, right? Okay, so here she is. She's been with six guys, right? And then Jesus says, and the one you're with right now is not yet your husband. Who's she with right now? Who's she talking to? And he's lucky number seven, right? He's saying, I'm the bridegroom you're looking for. You've been looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. Thanks for playing, right? That's what's going on. You get Jesus coming to the Last Supper, and he says to his disciples, this is the cup of my covenant given for you. That's the formula that a young Jewish boy would take when he wanted to get betrothed to his girlfriend in the ancient world. He would present her with a cup of wine and say, this is the cup of my covenant. The, old, like the Passover, the Last Supper, was a betrothal scene. Jesus is saying with his words, like, I'm giving myself to you. And then what he did with his words handed over his body, handed over his blood. He literally does the next day on the cross. Right? In the ancient Jewish, in the ancient Jewish uh, world, 
on the day of a, of a, the day of a bridegroom's wedding, he would be dressed in this seamless linen garment called a keton. You know, there's one word that John uses to describe Jesus' garment in the Gospel of John? A seamless linen garment. A keton. You know what the bridegroom would wear on the day of his wedding on his head? A crown. You know what he would have in his hand marching towards his wedding? A staff. Hello. (laughs) John is saying, behold the bridegroom. Behold the bridegroom, right? Jesus, upon the cross, as he's giving up his spirit, it says in the Greek, well, we hear in English, it is finished. It is finished. When St. Jerome translated that from the Greek into the Latin, St. Jerome who translated the Bible, he translated tel telestai into the Latin consummatum est. It is consummated. The dying breath of the, bride, of the bridegroom on the cross is it is consummated. Where do we, like, what's another context in which we hear the word consummated? Marriage. After the husband and wife say their vows to each other on the day of their wedding, they're not yet fully married until they've consummated their marriage. In other words, the words they've spoken with their vows, they have to speak with their bodies. What he said the night before, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. He's doing it. The marriage between heaven and earth is consummated. This is a lot, y'all, right? Yeah. Okay, there's more. There's more. We've got like 13 minutes. He's lanced in the side upon his death to make sure he's dead. And blood and water flows out, right? We talked about this last time, the blood and water being symbols of baptism and the Eucharist. Those are the two sacraments that make you part of the church. And the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. So just think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam is asleep and God removes from his side a rib and fashions from the rib what? The woman, the bride, Eve. The bride is pulled out of the side of the bridegroom. The bride is pulled out of the side of the bridegroom. Like this is all like this is it all goes together. It all goes together. On the day of Passover, the Jewish rabbis, the tradition had had grown up that the rabbis would be chanting the scriptures all day long. You would hear the scriptures chanted in the air. And by about the third o'clock, three o'clock hour, they would have reached the song of songs in the scriptures. So when Jesus is dying and hanging on the cross, you know what was heard in the air? The Song of Songs, the, the, the book that talks about the longing of the bride for her bridegroom. This is not all, it's just, it's just not all made up. It's, it's all real. This is all real. The bridegroom shows us what love is. This is what he's doing. This is who Christ is. He loves us unto the end, right? This is why masculinity and femininity matter. If you don't know what a bridegroom is, if you don't know what a bride is, you don't know what a man is, you don't know what a woman is, none of this makes sense. Creation, salvation, redemption, none of it makes sense. All of those words are gone if they don't make sense. So Jesus upon the cross, he loves us freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully. Those are the questions that get asked to a bridegroom and a bride on the day of their wedding. They come and stand before the altar and the priest says, 
Have you come here without coercion to give yourselves to each other freely in marriage? They say, I have. Right? You guys did it. Have you, do you promise to be faithful to each other for as long as you both shall live? I am. Do you promise to accept children lovingly from God and to bring them up according to the law of Christ in his church? I am. These questions, they are saying, do you have the kind of love that looks like Jesus' love? Jesus who said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down freely. Jesus who was totally, who was a total gift of himself on the cross. He wasn't just injured, he totally gave everything away. Jesus who said, I will be with you until the end of the age. Jesus who said, I, I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Right? Spouses on the altar, they promise, like, they say yes to these things. But, like, like what, if, what if they were to sing, like, like, someone might, all right, so let me back up. They speak their vows to each other. Then in the sanctuary of their bedroom, they speak their vows again in the sexual act. So if spouses say yes at the altar, but then they render, back to contraception, if they render their union sterile, they're saying with their bodies, I do not give myself to you. Like, I do not want this union to be life-giving. I mean, and people could say, I mean, come on, like, I, I can commit to being open to children at the altar, but this, this doesn't mean that each and every act of intercourse needs to be open to life, does it? Well... That makes about as much sense as saying, I, I can commit to fidelity at the altar, but that doesn't mean that each and every act of sexuality has to be with my spouse, does it? That doesn't make sense, right? That's not going to work. Each and every, each and every. That was the wording in the, the noisy cricket that bothered the world. Each and every. That was the wording that bothered the world. Yes, each and every, because sexuality is so monumentally significant. That marriage, sex, and babies that go together in this order because like this trinity of truths reveals something so much deeper. It reveals something so much deeper. Right? And like the chaos, the confusion of our world, like it ain't gonna be fixed by politicians or policies or laws. It's gonna be fixed, it's gonna be healed with the truth. Like the truth. You know, St. Paul, um, in Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about this whole reality, this great mystery, this idea that God has created marriage, family, sexuality to be a sign that points to God's love. He calls it the great mystery. You know what happens after Ephesians chapter 5? What comes after Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 6, that's right. In Ephesians chapter 6, you know what Paul talks about? The armor of God. He says, basically, after he tells us the heart of the gospel, he says, get ready for battle. He tells us about the armor we're to put on. And you know the first thing he says? He says, gird your loins in the truth. Y'all know what your loins are? <laughs> saying, gird them in truth. In truth. We have generations now that have been girding their loins in lies. This is what creates the culture of death, right? So back to that image of Fatima. So Jacinta and Francesco Marto, they were, they were um, brother and sister. They died very shortly after Mary appeared to them. But Lucia, their cousin, Lucia de Santos, she lived to a ripe old age. She was, she was a nun. Um, she was in her 90s, I think, when she died. I think it was 2005, I think, when she died, yeah. Man, long. That's a, that's a full life. Anyway, um, so 
the day that John Paul II was assassinated, the day that he was, uh, he was uh, the attempted assassination, I should say, he was riding around St. Peter's Square in the Mobile, and he was about to ride up to the front steps of uh, St. Peter's Square because he was planning, an, planning to announce the foundation of a new um, Vatican, uh, I don't know, dicastery, new Vatican foundation. It was going to be the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family. In other words, he was establishing formally for the first time like a university that was going to be um, dedicated to telling the world about the antidote. Right? The day that he was assassinated, or the attempted assassination, he was about to tell the world, yeah, we're going to start evangelizing the world with this thing called theology of the body. We've got to get the antidote out there as, much as, as fast as possible. That's when he was gunned down. Do you think there's a connection here? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, the surgeon who, who saved his life, he wasn't even at work that day. He was at home. And he told the story later. He said, I was at home, and for some strange reason, I, he's like, I couldn't explain it. I felt compelled to get in my car to go to work. And so he's like, so I did. I just started driving to the hospital. And he goes, as I was driving to the hospital, I heard on the radio, the Holy Father's been shot. He's like the number one trauma surgeon in Rome. This, this drive that should have taken about 35 minutes, inexplicably, because of traffic, green lights, all those things, took him 13 minutes. He gets to the hospital, tons of blood. He's, he loses tons of blood. And the surgeon says later, he says one hand, John Paul II said, one hand fired the gun, another hand guided the bullets. How awesome is that? John Paul II took the bullet that was in his body and he put it into the crown of Our Lady of Fatima that's in St. Peter's Square where Mary's gaze looks down on the exact spot where he was shot. So that Sister Lucia, the one who was the visionary Fatima, um, she was later being, she was contacted by a guy named Carlo Cafara, who was the founder of... Uh, John Paul II had appointed him to be the founder, the founding president of this Institute on Studies of Marriage and the Family. And he was having a hard time, a real hard go of it. And he asked her for advice, and she said, um, my brother, the, those who are on the side of marriage and family will always be in opposition, will always find themselves in opposition. She said the final and decisive battle between Christ and and the enemy will be over the issue of marriage and family. Marriage and family. Again, why? Because the enemy wants to get into, let's just put it this way, he wants to get into the womb. He wants, he hates life. He hates life. You look at the book of Revelation, where is the dragon? The dragon is right there as the woman is wailing in labor pains, giving birth. It says the enemy is right there to consume the life. That's what's going on. The enemy hates our life-giving power because he hates Mary. He hates her womb. He hates all these things. He hates our masculinity. He hates our femininity. He hates our bodies. The final battle is over, the, the, is over our flesh. He wants us to hate our flesh and destroy our flesh, sterilize our flesh, all of that. That's, where, that's what he wants. 
But the truth, Mary promised to those same kids in Fatima, she said, in the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. She said, my immaculate heart will triumph. So when it seems the darkest, right, and things, things are seeming pretty dark, right? Like, it's getting kind of dark. Um, I think we're coming towards, like, the final lapse of the sexual revolution. I think right now, you've heard me say this before, I think the enemy, Mary's got her foot on the enemy's neck, on that serpent's neck, and the serpent's tail is just whipping furiously because he's just ticked off, right? Someone right before they, like, suffocate to death, their, their final gasping breaths are violent and crazy. That's what's going on, right? He knows he loses. That's why he's so pissed. He knows he loses. Enemy, Mary's already destroyed him. Jesus, through her, has already... Which is awesome. With one minute to spare, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, you promise us that in the end, Mary's immaculate heart will triumph. So, Blessed Mother, we come to you at the end of this session. Mary, I ask you in particular to protect all of our hearts that any, any wounds or any lies that might have been sown in, any doubts or judgments, Mary... Through your intercession, may they be uprooted and thrown into the fire of Jesus' heart. Any truth that was sown, may it be uh, multiplied. Jesus, help us to fall more in love with you, you who are the truth. Let's pray together. Oh, we have some petitions first. I pray for Randy Evans as he fights for his life against COVID. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Let's lift up all of the intentions that are in our hearts to our Blessed Mother as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen.